0: The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. God, we're grateful to be in this space to worship you together as a community. And we would pray, Lord, that um, you would speak to us in ways that we could see and know and understand. Lord, just to give us a clarity about who you are and who you've called us to be and that you would give us insight and purpose for our lives. God, that we would embrace that you have accomplished through Jesus Christ um, a salvation that is for all, and that we can then live freely because we have been redeemed and restored in and through you. And toward that end, God, I pray that you pour through me the gift of teaching, that everything said here be from you and because of you and guiding us towards you, Lord, as we partner with you to bring about your preferred future for all of creation. And we pray it in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, Ecclesia, I have a, uh, I have a confession that I just want to put out there for all of you, trusting um, that you will restore me gently, as the Scriptures call us to. Um, last night, I was supposed to run a 10K that I did not run at all. I didn't even show up, I didn't even go. But it wasn't really my fault, and it's a long story. So the thing is, for several years, I really enjoyed, I really enjoyed running. And like that was the thing, it cleared my head, it was good for me on a number of different levels. And then I started to experience um, a couple of symptoms. So um, I have this really, um, bad right foot, and I was having some trouble with, and I've had a bad left knee since the time I was about eight years old. And so I went to the doctor, and she told me, she said, well, you've, you've come down with a condition. It's very technical sounding. Um, it's called um, old. <laughs> and so well, that, that sounds like something that you really can't fix all that easily. And so I went to a podiatrist and was having her look at my foot, and she was explaining to me, oh, this is what's happening with your metatarsals, and this is some things that we can do to it. You'd have to have surgery if it got any worse, but we're not at that point yet. And she said, well, when does it hurt? And I said, it hurts when I run. And she said, stop running. And I was like, you went to medical school for this? Like, clearly just a group of people could have come up with this answer on our own. So I decided I was just going to have to stop running for a while. And she said, we'll see. if It heals up, and you might be able to do some stuff in the future. So back this spring, uh, it was feeling a whole lot better. I was able to do more on it. My knee was feeling pretty good as long as I kept, you know, my hamstring loose and all this other sort of thing that I had to do. And I decided, okay, I'm going to start running again. And so I'm going to register for a 10K in the fall. So I have plenty of time to get ready for it because it's, like, it's not like super grueling. It's like a marathon, right? But it's just a 10K, just very doable, right in the middle. It's not a 5K. I've done 1,000 5Ks. Anybody can do a 5K. Matter of fact, there's a point in a 5K where you're just so far into it, like the only way to get back to your car is just to finish. Like anybody can do that. And I was thinking, that will be perfect. But I also have this thing. It had to be at night. Um, because of other commitments in the fall. And I don't run outside after it gets to be 85 degrees because I'm not insane, right? And like, I don't have anything to prove to anybody. So everything was going well in the spring, and I was kind of getting ready for this 10K and doing some other stuff, and the summer hit, and I took it from outside to inside to treadmill because again, it was over 85 degrees and I'm not crazy. And then about six weeks ago, uh, I got an email from the race coordinator, and they said because of Tropical Storm Imelda, that part of the race course, the 10K race course, had been damaged, they couldn't get it fixed, so everybody running the 10K was going to be downgraded to the 5K. And my first thought was, well, Can't the people running the 10K just do the 5K course twice? Like, I'm not a mathematician, but I was able to put that together. And then my second thought was, well, I I guess I can eat those cookies now because I don't have to do this 10K. And what happened inside was as soon as it went from a 10K to a 5K, I lost all interest. Like, that was not... Compelling to me in the least bit. And the reason why is that I've already got, like, I've done a thousand 5Ks and I've already got a 5K time that I'm really happy with, that I don't have any, I don't feel any desire to kind of beat that time, but I don't have a 10K time and I can't get to where I want to go to the next level unless I get a 10K time that I want. And so this was this opportunity for me, like, to compete with myself about this time, and when the competition was gone, all of my interest was gone because I'm the kind of person, and some of you are like this, I'm the kind of person that competes at everything all the time. Like, everything's a competition. Like, it doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter if there's no... When I have competed with people, and they didn't even know that I was competing with them, but I was competing with them. And it feels good to win competitions that people don't know that you're competing with them in, but it feels awful to lose competitions that people don't know that you're competing with them in. And I just competed, everything's like the way that I'm wired. So like when, when my book, Unarmed Empire, became number one in its category on Amazon, like, I let everybody that I know know that, but I didn't want everybody to know. I just wanted my other, my writer friends to know that it was number one because I'm always competing. I have this friend whose wife complains to him that she, he speeds, that he drives too fast, and he says, like, perfect. He says, it's not that I want to speed. I just don't like other people being in front of me. And I was like, you have explained my life to me in this moment. And that's just the way that I'm wired. And I know, like, for many of us, we are the exact same way. You're the exact same way. Like, you're always like competing against, about something. And there are others of us who don't get that at all. Like, you look at those of us who are always competing, and you think, something is wrong with you. And you're probably right. So when my oldest daughter, who turned 16 this week, when she first started running cross country in junior high, we went to her first cross country meet, Like, we didn't expect her to be any sort of, like, world beater or anything great, but she was going to perform pretty solidly. And she went and she ran the junior high girls race, and she did fine, and everybody was pleased, and she was happy. She actually did better than we thought. But at this very same meet, some friends of ours from church, their son was running in the boys' junior high race, right? But he had a lot of skill. Like, we were thinking he might not win, but he could come in the top three, the top five, the top seven, somewhere like that. And everybody's kind of excited to see him run. And as he's going to the starting line, he meets this other kid, and he could tell like something's kind of off with him. And it's kind of a, a bigger kid, and he looks really worried. And so our friend asks us, hey, you know, is everything okay, you looking forward, we're gonna have like a fun run? And he says, I'm really kind of worried. So I don't really like running, and I'm doing it because my parents are making me. <laughs> and I'm just scared that I'm gonna come in last. And our friend said, don't worry. Um, I will run with you the whole time. Which made his mother furious. (laughs) Because she was a high school track star, and she was anxious to see how her son would do, and here he is just like hanging out in the back with this kid. And some people, like some of you, are like that, like the competition thing doesn't matter at all to you. But the older I get, I know one thing, is that we all have our thing. Like we all have a thing that we think makes us special or unique. We all have our thing that we want to highlight and for some of us, it's our education. And for others, it's our looks, the business that we built, the wealth that we've accumulated. So for some of us, it's our children and what they've been able to do, what we've done for them. Like we all have our thing that we think gives us some measure of authority or influence or uniqueness. And the small word for that is Power. We all have something that we think proves our worth and gives us power, a way to move forward in the world, and it's different for different ones of us, but what is almost universal to everyone is that we really fundamentally believe that power will make us happy, that the ability to do what we want, when we want, where we want, with who we want and how we want. Like that's the key to happiness. And you've experienced that yourself. Like you know, or at least you think that your life would be better if your spouse did what you wanted when, they wanted, when you wanted them to do it. Or your kids, or your boss, or your coworkers. That power really will make you happier. And on the other side of that like some of us have been on the downside of somebody else having a power that we've been ignored or abused abandoned we've been discarded by people with power or people have used their power to manipulate and trick us and we know that There is such a thing as power in the universe, and if someone's gonna have power, it's gonna be me. Because you've been violated when other people have had power. And somewhere you have said to yourself, I am never going to be vulnerable, I'm never going to be open to that again. So if there is going to be power, and if someone else is going to have power, I'm out. And the reason I mention that is that we all have to come to terms with whether or not power will actually make us happy. And the reason that you think and I think power will make you happier is because, Power will actually make you happier. So, in a 2015 um, article in Psychological Science. They discovered through a series of studies that power actually does make you happier. You will be happier if you can do what you want, when you want, where you want, how you want, with who you want. But they also discovered this. This is what it says. It says, putting all this together then, these studies suggest that if you are in a position of power then it enables you to live your life on your own terms. And that authenticity creates a general sense of well-being. So power does make people happy. There's one thing to watch out for in all this, though. While having power can make you happier, seeking power does not make you happier. There is quite a bit of evidence that people who spend their lives seeking power do not focus on the intrinsic joy of life. So people who seek power are actually less happy than those who do not. And the reason I mention this is that if you've been around Ecclesia for the last several months, uh, you will know that Pastor Chris and I have been working our way through some figures from Christian history who have been instructive for us and kind of who point us to how we want to be and move in the world. And one of those, the person who, for me, reshaped my imagination around power was this man, Henry Nouwen. And Henry Nouwen was born in 1932. He was a Dutch Catholic writer, theologian, and public thinker. It's actually probably pronounced Henri Nouwen, but I'm from Mississippi, so we're sticking with Henry. And Henry Nouwen was one of the most important Christian thinkers of the last century. In his time, he taught at University of Notre Dame, Yale Divinity School, and Harvard Divinity School. Henry Nouwen wrote 39 books, which sold over 7 million copies. He never had to tell his friends where his book was on Amazon. (laughs) But at the height of his career while teaching at Harvard Divinity School. He was visited by a guest le- lecturer, a man named Jean Vanier, who we talked about several weeks ago. And Vanier had established these communities around the globe called Arche, where um, able-bodied women and men served disabled women and men all day and all night. And Vanier sensed in Nowen a deep loneliness and invited him to leave Harvard and to come live at La Arche, take care of one of their residents, and serve as their chaplain. And the remarkable thing about that is that Nowen did. And he discovers, one of the things he discovers while at La Arche is a reframing of what it is to have power. And it's all rooted in this teaching of Jesus from Matthew 20. So in Matthew 20, Jesus has just told his disciples about his upcoming death. And like some of you have had that conversation with people that you love, maybe family members, where it's getting close to the end for them and you have to have those really hard discussions about what it's going to be like for them and what it's going to be like for everybody else once they're gone. And you know the weight of those discussions when you have them. When Jesus starts talking about his death with his disciples, that is not what happens at all. They have a completely different reaction. And so right after Jesus has explained to his disciples that he is going to die, and everything that that means, this is what happens in Mark 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked for a favor of him. He he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, declare that these two sons of mine will sit, one at your right hand and one at your left In your kingdom. Okay, so her two sons, James and John, this might be the original Tiger Mom. (laughs) Because she comes to Jesus and she says, "Um, I heard that part, it got back to me that part about you dying. So when all of that happens, here's what I wanna go down. I want my sons to sit at your right hand and at your left hand. She comes to Jesus. She does something that would be hard for me to do. I imagine many of you probably wouldn't do. She comes to Jesus and asks for a favor and says, when you come into your kingdom, um, give my kids power. Who does that? I'll tell you who does that. Good moms do that because good moms are deeply concerned about what's best for their kids. The question is, what makes us think we know what's best? Because you know what (laughs) we think is best? We think what's best is being able to do what you want, when you want, how you want, where you want, with who you want. We think what's best is power. How many times have you, for your children, or maybe your parents did this for you, how much time and energy have they spent worrying and praying about what kind of career you're going to have or what college you're going to go to? or what high school you might go to? How many of you know parents who are concerned about what preschool their kids are gonna go to? Because the coloring at this preschool is way better than the coloring at this preschool. What we want is for our kids to be able to do what they want, when they want, where they want, how they want, with who they want. We want our kids to have power because we believe that power will make them happy. But then Jesus responds, and Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, You will indeed drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left, that is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. So Jesus says, "Um, I'm not even gonna talk to mom, I'm just gonna talk to you because you're grown men by now. So let me just talk to you. Are you able to drink my cup? Jesus says, Are you able to drink my cup that I'm gonna be able to drink? And they say, Yes, which is ridiculous. Like what cup? What's in the cup? Jesus is not inviting these guys out to happy hour. They're saying, yeah, Jesus, we can do this. We're with you. Yes, we can, and all that stuff. And they don't even know what he's asking. Have you ever done that? You ever like hopped in, dove head first, signed on the dotted line, agreed to the terms, clicked that little box, and you didn't even know what you were signing up for. You just knew that it was power adjacent. Like, I don't know what all this is, but I'll support her, I'll support him, I'm going down that route, I don't know what it is, but it seems like it might come with some power. Like, I'm in for it. Even though I don't know what it is. I just want the power. Well, it's not just Jesus and James and John and their mom. There are some other people who hear about this conversation. And this is what Matthew tells us next. He says, when the 10 heard it, They were angry with the two brothers." Well, of course they were. Like, wouldn't you be? What makes them think they're so special that they should be able to sit at Jesus' right and Jesus' left? Like, what have they done that the rest of us haven't done? What makes them so unique? Of course they get angry. You've been angry before. Let me me tell you something about the human condition. Do Do you know why you get angry? The reason you get angry, the reason I get angry, we get angry when we can't have something we want. That's why people get angry. When the world's not the way that you want it. When this relationship's not the way that you want it when the kids aren't behaving the way that you want them, when your partner's not behaving the way that you want it, when things at work aren't going the way that you want it, that's when you get angry. And and some of that's righteous. Like, you're angry that there are people who lack access to clean drinking water, and you're angry that there are women and men who are sleeping on the street. You know what else makes you angry? When someone merges into traffic ahead of you. You get angry when you don't get, when you don't have the thing that you want, it's not the way it's supposed to be. And these guys get angry because they know. If Jesus says yes, if somebody else has the power, then guess who doesn't? You. If somebody else has the power, you don't. Have any of you ever been to this thing? um, What do they call it? Um, Work. (laughs) And that's not the way that I would have done it. That's not the decision I would have made. That's not the person I would have hired. That's not how I would have spent that money. They get angry. Because things aren't the way that they want them. And then Matthew does something that I just love. And whenever these two words are crammed together in Scripture, they are like my favorite thing. He says, but Jesus. Matthew writes, but Jesus called to them, to him, and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. It will not be so among you. But whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be your slave, just as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So if you've been around a church, if you've been around the Bible any amount of time, You have probably heard this teaching of Jesus from Matthew 20, where this very clear teaching of Jesus about what leadership looks like and what service looks like, what power looks like. says if you want all that influence, then you need to learn how to serve. And that's really necessary. It's very important in our day and age that more and more people understand that. But what I love about what Jesus says here, about what Matthew shares about Jesus, is that he says Jesus called to them. that Jesus called to them. Jesus doesn't deride them. He doesn't yell at them. He doesn't manipulate or cajole them. He calls them. And he says, you already know how other people use power. You've been on the wrong end of other people's power. Not so with you. And there are a lot of us who don't know how to have a relationship with our spouse, our coworkers, our children, our parents. Some of us don't know how to have a relationship with them without yelling. Without manipulating, without controlling. And what Jesus says is I want to invite you into a different way of using power, of seeing power. And this is an invitation for you to fundamentally shift how you see and use power. And this is the same Jesus who says to his disciples after the crucifixion, when he he says, go to Jerusalem and wait, and there you will receive power. And there is an ocean's worth of difference between seeking power and receiving power. And it's the reason that I am a horrible person to buy Christmas gifts for. Because I will tell my wife and I will tell our girls um, these things that they could possibly get me for Christmas gift if they were to get me a Christmas gift. And I always say the same thing. There's nothing I need, you don't have to worry about it. But if you're gonna try and get something, try and get this. And then inevitably, a few weeks before Christmas, I will just go to the store and buy it for myself. Which means on Christmas Day, there is nothing for me to receive, which does not make me happy. Jesus isn't saying there's something inherently wrong with power. And I believe if you are actually following in the footsteps of Jesus, that you will be blessed, you will be given, you will be gifted more and more influence and power in more and more places. But there's a difference between seeking power and receiving power. And this is why I find Henry Allen so remarkable. So when Vanier invites Henry Allen to leave Harvard and the speaking career and the writing career all behind, that he does it. Nowin later writes about what his days were like when he was at La'Arche. And when he was there, they gave him the most difficult resident to take care of. And his name was Adam. And this is how Nowen described his days with Adam. He says, it takes me about an hour and a half to wake Adam up, give him his medication, carry him into his bath, wash him, shave him, clean his teeth. Dress him, walk him to the kitchen, give him his breakfast, put him in his wheelchair, and bring him to the place where he spends most of the day with therapeutic exercises. He does not cry or laugh. Only occasionally does he make eye contact. His back is distorted, his arm and leg movements are twisted. He suffers from severe epilepsy, and despite heavy medication, sees few days without grand mal seizures. Sometimes, as he grows suddenly rigid, he utters a howling groan. On a few occasions, I've seen one big tear roll down his cheek. And this is how Henry Nouwen would spend his days for the rest of his life. And there's not a person that you know who would consider this sitting at the right or left hand. but it is. And Nowen was asked, not infrequently, if he really believed that taking care of Adam every day was the best use of his gifts, his talents. Like, shouldn't he be teaching? Shouldn't he be writing? Shouldn't he be traveling? Shouldn't he be speaking? Whether or not, with all of the things that God had gifted him with, whether or not that was the best use of his time. And Nowen said, of course it was. It's because in taking care of Adam is how he learned to love. And we live in a world, a society, a country, that is so enamored with power and loving power, supporting power, seeking power, giving cover for power, that we have almost completely lost the reality that God has sent us into the world to be people of love. As a matter of fact, we are so in love with power that we have forgotten the power of love. And as long as we have power, no matter how we get it, no matter what we have to say to keep it, no matter who we have to support to have it, power in itself is our aim. And this is what Nouwen says about power. He says, you all know what the third temptation of Jesus was. It was the temptation of power I will give you all the kingdoms of this world in their splendor, the demon said to Jesus. When I ask myself the main reason for so many people having left the church during the past decades in France, Germany, Holland, and also in Canada and America, the word power easily comes to mind. One of the greatest ironies of the history of of Christianity is that its leaders constantly gave in to the temptation to power political power, military power, economic power, or moral and spiritual power, even though they continue to speak in the name of Jesus, who did not cling to his divine power, but emptied himself and became as we are. What makes the temptation of power so seemingly irresistible? Maybe it is that power offers an easy substitute for the hard task of love. It seems easier to be God than to love God, easier to control people than to love people, easier to own life than to love life. One thing is clear to me, the temptation of power is greatest when intimacy is a threat. Much Christian leadership is exercised by people who do not know how to develop healthy, intimate relationships and have opted for power and control instead. Many Christian empire builders have been people unable to give and receive love. And what now reminds us of is the first song of the church from Philippians 2 that Jesus did not consider equality with God, power, as something to be grasped, but emptied himself. And so my prayer for you and for me is that we become people who accept Jesus's invitation to radically reconstitute what we view as power and how we use our power and in every circumstance of power, that we would wield it solely for the purpose of love. Ecclesia, let me pray for you. God, would you show us the places where you have already given us power and influence? that we may wield your power in the service of love for one another and for all of your creation, that we would be people who redefine the power we see in the world as something that is whole and self-sacrificial and redemptive. And we ask for it in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org